0: Thank you to Green Chef for supporting today's episode. Green Chef's expert chefs design flavorful recipes for your lifestyle that go way beyond the ordinary. Go to greenchef.com slash hopeful100 and use code hopeful100 to get $100 off, including free shipping.
1: Well, one of the things we have to recognize is that our drug policies are based on lies and misinformation. We have exaggerated the harms associated with all of these drugs and including cannabis. But we're starting to see now that we've been lied to about cannabis. For example, when cannabis was banned in the 1930s, 1937 at the federal level, we said that people who smoke cannabis, they will start smoking cannabis one day, the next day they're doing heroin and then they're killing their mothers and they're engaged in all of these heinous acts, all of these lies we told the public in order to ban cannabis.
0: Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Our guest is Carl Hart, the Ziff Professor of Psychology in Psychiatry at Columbia University and the author of Drug Use for Grown-Ups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. We unpack our deepest misconceptions about the use of drugs and make a case for legalization and regulation. He starts his prologue in the book with this quote by Thomas Jefferson. If people let government decide which foods they eat and medicines they take, their bodies will soon be in as sorry a state as are the souls of those who live under tyranny. Further, Dr. Hart argues that the declaration of independence is central to how we should think about abolishing the prohibition of drugs.
1: The Declaration of Independence lays out these ideals or these promises that each of our citizens are entitled to, and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is one. If people choose to use drugs in their pursuit of happiness, so long as they're not bothering other people or disrupting other people's ability to pursue their rights, That is the right that is protected. And it's inconsistent with our American ideals to prevent people from altering their consciousness or pursuing happiness as they see fit.
0: So if we go from that premise, how are we going to make it safe for all? We think that it's very easy to get addicted, but actually that's not true. How should we think about it?
1: addiction represents a relatively small proportion of drug effects. Let's say 10 to 30 percent of the people who use any of the drugs, including heroin, tobacco, will become addicted. That means that the vast majority of abusers of any drug won't become addicted. But when we talk about drugs in our sort of public space, drug addiction has this disproportionate or outsized attention. I can tell you that addiction has very little to do with drugs themselves, and it has more to do with the psychosocial environmental conditions under which the drug user or drug using occurs. And so that means that we know that people who are uh, experiencing psychiatric disorders, for example, uh, they're more likely to uh, meet criteria for drug addiction. We also know that people who recently lost jobs or they've been shut out of mainstream society, those people are more likely to uh, meet criteria. Criteria for addiction. So these psychosocial important conditions have more to do with drug addictions than the drugs themselves. One of the things that we've done in our country is that we've fooled the population to believe that drug addiction is primarily the result of some drug, as opposed to looking at the complete individual and the individual's environmental conditions.
0: Yeah, thank you for answering it this way. But actually, the first question I really wanted to ask is about safety. One of my favorite examples that you write about in the book is in Barcelona and how they have decriminalized, actually, drug use since 1973, which I didn't know. And also, they have anonymous drug purity testing. Can you tell us about what that is and why it makes drug use safer?
1: Yeah. So when we think about the so-called opioid crisis that we are experiencing in the United States, when I say opioid crisis, uh, I have to really define what I mean. In this case, I'm talking about drug-related overdose deaths. When we think about the 45,000 Americans who may lose their life and have an opioid in their system, one of the things that we know is that the vast majority of those people took a drug in which they did not know the contents of the drug. So they didn't know whether or not when they bought heroin that the drug actually contained heroin or did it contain some adulterant. One of the things that the people of Spain have done is that they decided that illicit drug use would not be such a vicarious endeavor. And so they implemented these facilities where people can submit small samples of their drugs, 10 milligrams or so, and then they can get a chemical printout of what is contained in the substance. So if you think you have heroin, when in fact you have fentanyl, fentanyl is a lot more potent. That means that you won't take as much as you would have taken something like heroin, or you may not take it at all. The point is that that sort of strategy saves lives. And if we have implemented such a strategy in the United States, we could really reduce the number of drug-related overdoses.
0: Given that we live in the United States, it's highly unlikely that we will get there. But I was thinking we could talk about the difference between decriminalization and legalization. And maybe this will get us a little bit closer to an environment in the U.S. that is more conducive to safe use of drugs. What's the difference?
1: So, when we think about legalization, what we're really talking about is drug regulation. Like, we regulate alcohol, we regulate tobacco, we regulate cannabis in a growing number of states, such that uh, adults of a certain age can purchase these substances and not worry about the substances not having quality control. And people can sell these substances and, and make money and we can have taxes on these substances. That's legal regulation. When we think about decriminalization is where people will not go to jail for using or having personal amounts of the drugs on their Possession, But you cannot sell these drugs uh, legally. So drug sales is still banned, but drug possession is not a criminal offense. And that's the difference. And the thing about decriminalization, it's a good thing that we're not arresting people. I applaud that. But we don't have the quality control. And so people still, when they're buying drugs on the black market, if you will, you run the risk of them getting tainted substances or substances that contains adulterants that are dangerous. And so that's the real concern with decriminalization.
0: Thank you for explaining it so clearly. So in the U.S., if we can both decriminalize drugs and also legalize it, and I think we may be getting there, given the recent developments in New York State, certainly, which I was really surprised by, do you think that we can also dislodge the racist policies against people of color. Because I feel like I'm very suspicious that even if we legalize and decriminalize drugs, we're still going to only jail brown and Black people.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And that worries me too. Even though technically uh, drug possession is not a criminal offense, you can still harass, you can still arrest various people, especially folks who are from specific minority backgrounds. If we think about cannabis legalization or legal regulation in places like Colorado and Washington, they voted to legalize in 2012. If we look at the data, what we see is that places like Colorado and Washington have dramatically reduced the number of arrests related to cannabis. But the arrests that they do make you still see black people are three times more likely to be arrested for cannabis than their white counterparts, even though they use the substance at similar rates. And so your concern is spot on. And we see that in a place like Baltimore where they decriminalized in 2014. Someone collected data from 2015 to 2017, and they made something like 1,500 arrests for marijuana possession even though the drug is decriminalized in in Baltimore. And of that 1,500 arrests, 96% were Black, even though Black people only make up about 60% of the city population. So you uh, raise a very real issue, and it points to this fact. We can't look to drug policy alone to solve America's racism problem. Drug policy is is not gonna do it alone. That's something deeper within us as Americans. And so we have to take action at a number of areas in, within our society and drug policy is just one area.
0: Oh, that's a good way to put it, I have some questions about the way that we think about drugs in popular culture, which, of course, there's a big part of racism, as we've just mentioned. But also, I think there's a like a huge amount of fear. I have to tell you that I grew up in Germany, and we read this book about uh, Christiane F. She was like a 13-year-old girl in Berlin who became a heroin addict and at the time I was 11 and we read this book and we were terrified. And so it was the kind of thing where we thought, oh my God, this is so dangerous. But actually what you're saying in the book at length is that it's not so dangerous, that a lot of people are law-abiding citizens, they pay their taxes, they're responsible parents, and they consume drugs the way that people smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol, and I was thinking, how can we actually get people to understand this?
1: Well, one of the things we have to recognize is is that our drug policies are based on lies and misinformation. Well, that's we call that propaganda. And you have propaganda because people benefit. And so in this case, people are benefiting from the drug propaganda. Now, that's not to say that drug use like heroin use isn't potentially dangerous because it certainly can be, just like driving an automobile can be potentially dangerous. So I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we have exaggerated the harms associated with all of these drugs, and including cannabis. But we're starting to see now that we've been lied to about cannabis. For example, when cannabis was banned in the 1930s, 1937, at the federal level, we said that people who smoke cannabis, they will start smoking cannabis one day, the next day they're doing heroin, and then they're killing their mothers. Uh, and they're engaged in all of these heinous acts, all of these lies we told the public in order to ban cannabis. We did the same sort of thing for cocaine. We said that black men who take cocaine were impervious to 32 caliber bullets. And so you need a bigger gun in order to shoot them or kill them. And so our drug policies are based on exaggerations and lies, propaganda, because people benefited. The medical establishment benefited. They were the only ones who could really deal with these compounds. It gave them uh, a bigger role, greater control, law enforcement. It increased the budget for the Bureau of Narcotics. All of these sort of things are in play today drug treatment facilities, they benefit. Physicians benefit from this nonsense. People who test your urine to see if you have a drug in your system, they benefit. The prisons, they benefit because they need commodities. People there in their prisons. And so if we're going to address that sort of issue, we have to make sure people understand that they've been misled. And they now understand that they've been misled about marijuana. So you hope that they ask this question, if I've been lied to about marijuana, is it possible that I've been lied to about cocaine? Is it possible that I've been lied to about heroin? It becomes difficult for those people to ask those questions in part because drugs are such convenient scapegoats for the typical person in society as well. You can't understand the behavior of your loved one. Then you can say, oh, drug addiction, drugs did that. And then you don't have to think about your interaction in that uh, mix. You don't have to think about your sort of uh, responsibility. Politicians do the same sort of things. People need jobs. They need better education. And those things are complicated, but it's a lot easier to tell a population We're gonna put more cops on the street. And then you can do that within your two year or four year or six year term, and you can see results. But when it comes to making sure people get jobs, making sure people have better education, making sure they have healthcare, those are more complicated. And so drugs are such an important scapegoat in our society for everyone. And so before we change our education or correct the information, We have to actually face this issue of what drugs are doing for us. That is the myth of drugs. What is the myth of drugs doing for us? Until we face that, it's going to be very difficult to change it.
0: Yes, indeed. You might remember what a big fan I am of HelloFresh. Well, today I'm back to tell you about Green Chef, the first USDA certified organic meal company. Green Chef is owned by HelloFresh and with a wide array of meal plans to choose from, there's something wholesome for everyone. I love switching between the brands and you will too. Go to greenchef.com hopeful100 and use code HOPEFUL100 to get $100 off including free shipping. Green Chef lets you choose from a wide array of easy to follow recipes, perfect for keto, paleo and plant-powered diets, or even if you just want to eat in a more balanced way. Green Chef has satisfying home-cooked dinners with options that work around your lifestyle, so you can get the most out of your meals without spending hours every week in the supermarket trying to find the best ingredients. I cooked the chicken pisteau with one of my teenage sons a few days ago. We had loads of fun prepping the meal, which was a snap to do, of course, thanks to the pre-measured ingredients. The meal was nothing short of delicious. We're fans of the artichokes roasted alongside the chicken and the dates and char mixed into the rice were a nice touch to round out the meal. No question that without Green Chef, I would have never bothered to make anything beyond plain white rice. Go to greenchef.com slash hopeful100 and use code hopeful100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Well, I think one of the things that really struck me when it comes to myths about drugs is that, you know, always all the poor people are all on drugs. And you point out that... The drug industry is a multi-billion dollar industry and that poor people alone could never support it. And I just thought, yeah, you know what? We never talk about that. Clearly a lot of people who are not poor are consuming drugs and buying a lot of drugs because it's expensive to buy drugs. Absolutely. I
1: traveled five continents, many countries within those continents, and I used drugs with a number of captains of industry, important people in their society academics, famous people, politicians, a wide range of people. And most of these people are middle to upper class people. And they are the folks who are primarily supporting the illicit drug trade. Because as you pointed out, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and poor people just can't support such an expensive industry. And we all know it. These uh, middle class and upper class people are in the closet about their use. And that's why I have come out of the closet so I could encourage other people to do the same so we would have a more realistic view of what a real drug user looks like. And so we stop unfairly persecuting poor people and people on the margins of our society for the very thing that our privileged people in our societies are doing.
0: You weren't always a drug user, though. And can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to actually try it?
1: I'm a scientist and I've studied all of these drugs and I've given these drugs to people in the laboratory and carefully examined their behaviors. And so when I looked at my data after 20 some years or so and like really started seeing the data and then looking at the research participants, many of them were really happy when you gave them a drug like cocaine or a drug like MDMA or an opioid. They felt better. So they treated other people better. They were open, magnanimous, forgiving, all of these important positive qualities that we try to encourage. And so I wanted to know everything about the drugs that I study from their chemical composition to what the effects felt like in research participants as well as in me. And so that really prompted my curiosity. I, I found it difficult to say that I was a drug expert, and not having any experience with the class of drugs that I said that I'm an expert in.
0: Yeah, I was really surprised by that turn of events. I felt like it took you a really long time to decide that you were going to try it. Uh, Like you said, after 20 years. You're right. What was it that after 20 years, like not after two years that you were like, okay, I'm going to give this a try?
1: No, you're right. But I had believed the hype. I believed all of these things and, and not even recognizing the contradiction, you know, in my own behaviors. I'm watching these folks and seeing the data and the data conflicts with our anecdotes that we tell a general population. So you're right. I had to really learn. I guess I wasn't mature enough or I didn't feel like I was mature enough and it just took me a longer time to grow up. I
0: I like it though. I like that you were like, okay, I'm 20 years in, maybe I should finally try it. It's cool. I have to tell you that I have basically done zero drugs. I've smoked some pot and that's it because like I said, that book scared the bejesus out of me. So I'm still scared. But I have a question about your experience of going to Switzerland and learning about how they deal with heroin addicts and how it changed your mind.
1: Yeah. So in 2015, I did a sabbatical in Switzerland. I had these false beliefs about heroin. I certainly. Uh, was afraid of heroin, thinking that uh, people who use heroin, they were degenerates, uh, their lives were out of control. I, I shared all of these kind of misapprehensions about the drug. But then when I spent some time there... I talked to people who were in the clinic who were receiving heroin twice a day, every day as part of their treatment. These folks were, by and large, happy. They were always on time for their appointments. They were as punctual as Swiss watches. They were happy to educate my ignorant but about these things. And so that helped to change my mind. Most of them, when they had to go, leave to go out of town, they had to work out how they would get their dose. And they had to maybe take an oral pill with them. It required a lot of planning and they did no problem. They were just regular people. And it just destroyed a lot of the myths or the misconceptions that I had. Even though this has been written in the literature for more than 20 years, again, it was just my American arrogance and ignorance that I didn't read it closely enough or I didn't really digest the data. And I think that had something to do with my American arrogance.
0: Well, it seems to me that in the United States specifically, there is an attitude that, or at least from what you're saying in the book, is that most American scientists will deny the actual science because it doesn't go with the narrative that we have popularized, the propaganda as you call it, because it is. And it's really difficult to have this cognitive dissonance to look at the data and be like, wait, this doesn't go with what I've been studying and learning. And so, you know, you keep denying it, even though it's right in front of you.
1: No, you're absolutely right. To be fair, though, we don't have any shortages of, for example, a parent who says that their child died from a heroin overdose. And so nobody wants to go against that narrative or that anecdote. But there is a reason we don't allow grieving parents to make policy, because they're child's case may not be representative and we may not know all the facts. And sure enough, when you start to dig into these cases, when people say something like they died from a heroin overdose, then you start to dig into the cases. You start to learn that it's rare that someone would die from a single drug, including heroin. They may die from combining heroin with another sedative, or they may have gotten a tainted drug. All of these sort of things that we know. And so you have to really delve into these each individual cases before you can challenge or ask questions just so you can set the record straight. And so it's a lot easier for people just to go along with the story. And that's what documentary filmmakers do. That's what our news programs do. And that's what scientists do. They stay with that same story in part because it's hard to go against the wave of popular opinion, even when popular opinion is not grounded in evidence. And added to that is that scientists are rewarded for finding drug-related negative effects. That is the National Institute on Drug Abuse. They're primary focus has been on the negative effects produced by drugs. And that's what scientists look for. And that's what they find. And that's what they report. And they do so in this disproportionate manner. Because as Upton Sinclair has said, it's difficult to get a man, or in this case, a woman too, to see something when his or her salary depends upon them not seeing it. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what has happened in our science for decades.
0: Yeah. It's kind of heartbreaking when you read it, actually, because you're like, oh, wow, the evidence has been there for all this time, and here we are. But so now that you've written the book and you've been in this field for decades and you've gone all over the world to Switzerland, to Spain, to Brazil, the Philippines, all of these places, what do you think would be effective and responsible drug policy in the US if you could wave a magic wand? What would be the first thing you would do?
1: Yeah, so I would first think about the promises laid out in the Declaration of Independence. You know, the Declaration of Independence is not law. It's an ideal that we're all trying to uh, achieve. And so thinking about people's pursuit of happiness, their liberty, I would start there saying that adults should have the right to alter their consciousness as they see fit, as long as they don't bother other folks. That's fine. All right, how do I make this activity as safe as possible for our society? then I would heavily regulate it. I would make sure that we have quality control. I would make sure that we have age requirements. I would even maybe in some cases implement a, a competency requirement, like driving an automobile, you have to pass a test in order to get a license. We may have to do that for some of these drugs. You might have to have certain level of competency. That's where I would start thinking about how can I implement this? And I would make sure that no one is going to jail for what they put in their bodies. That just wouldn't be a thing. And we would not have police engaged in this activity because whenever you put police in an activity, you can be sure that they will fuck it up. And that's what they do here.
0: Indeed, they do. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to advocate for responsible drug laws?
1: Huh? Yeah, when we think about that, everyday citizens, I was just asked that they go back and just read the Declaration of Independence. It's very simple. In the first two sentences, it guarantees all of us, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness among other rights. As an everyday citizen, you have to make sure that what it means to be a patriotic American is the protection of those rights for others, not only yourself, but for other people. And I would make. Make sure, that the everyday citizens understood that if you wear the flag on your lapel, that's not patriotic. If you stand up at a baseball game for the national anthem, that's not patriotic. What's patriotic is when you're standing up for other people's rights that are guaranteed in the Declaration of Independence. And I have to be clear here too, because some people say about COVID and the vaccine, people say you have the right to not take the COVID vaccine as a response. Responsible citizen. My responsibility is that I feel like I have to take the vaccine if I'm going to interact with other people because I want to make sure I'm doing my part not to spread the virus. And so if I'm not going to interact with people, fine, do your thing. But in this case, I'm going to be interacting with people. So it doesn't mean that I have the right not to take the vaccine because I potentially impact other people's happiness by getting COVID-19 and then passing it on to someone else. So I have a responsibility in that case. And so. I I don't mean that we can just do anything we want in our pursuit of happiness, because that's not true. Our pursuit of happiness as a a member of a society, have to make sure we are not negatively impacting other people's ability to pursue their rights. And so I would like those regular folks in our society to be there and stand up for other people's rights. Now that's patriotism. And I would also ask regular Americans to get out of the closet about your drug use. I I know a number of people do cocaine at a party or some other drug, MDMA or some psychedelic. Be out of the closet about your drug use. And so you provide some shield for those people who are less fortunate and they are being persecuted for doing what we all are doing.
0: Yeah. I like that. Both of those things. Well, here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? What makes
1: me hopeful about the future, I've been watching the marijuana legislations around the country. I'm really hopeful that we are moving in the right direction with marijuana uh, legalization. I'm hopeful that Americans will really look at the prohibition that we've had on marijuana for more than 70 years and say, wait a second, if we were lied to about marijuana, we were probably lied to about these other drugs and that this will spread uh, to other drugs, that people will be flexible enough to use the knowledge gained with marijuana and apply it to heroin, to cocaine, to other drugs. And I'm watching what happens in Oregon, where they, as a state, have decriminalized all drugs. It's the first state to do that. And so that gives me a lot of hope and encouragement. And the young people, the millennials, I love that group because they challenge all of us to be better. They will make their mistakes as well they should, just like everyone else. But I'm really hopeful that they will do a lot better than we did.
0: Here, here. Thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed your book.
1: Thank you for uh, having me and thank you for reading the book.
0: The book and this subsequent conversation has really been eye-opening. For starters, I was really surprised to find that most people use drugs the way that we think people consume alcohol or tobacco. We're just so deeply steeped in the myth of drug use only being negative, that it's almost impossible to take in this information objectively. But I'm encouraged that Dr. Hart himself changed his own mind after 20 years of research in the field and is now helping us all to see the true picture. Naturally, as a host of a civic engagement podcast, I'm also a big fan of using the Declaration of Independence as a foundation for a discussion on changing public policy. What could be more American than to protect our collective rights to the freedom to pursue our happiness, which may include ingesting drugs? Well, if we agree on this, then I think it's high time that we embrace humane and safe drug policies, which includes anonymous drug purity testing, regulation, decriminalization, education and destigmatization. Next week, our guest is Mark Levine. He's a lawyer and one of the co-editors of the trial of the Chicago 7, the official transcript. We discuss how the edited transcripts of the trial came to be published in 1969, the parallels in American civic life between that time and today, and the necessity for all of us to be engaged. We saw what was going on and we said, this is outrageous. And our reaction was, more people have to know what's happening. We've got to get the word out. He said, somebody ought to do a book about this. And then we made that big jump. Hey, why don't we do it? And that was the big jump from being outside. And then all of a sudden, hey, let's see what we can do. And let's be an active participant. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for
1: continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sian. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.